Hello everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Airport Wild Podcast. As always, I'm your host Jesse Warner, and in today's episode, we recently got the chance to sit down and talk with Bill Antonides of Gander Island Consulting Services, as well as Cody Bashuska of Lumakers Wildlife Management, and discuss habitat management in an airport setting. We cover topics such as why habitat management is important on an airport, as well as cover some of the nuances of habitat management, such as edge and synergistic effects, and why you should be mindful of them in your management. This info and more on today's Airport Wild. You gotta quit hunting turkeys in a zoo. We used to say in the first hour or two you can kill all the elephants. Kick her off. So, Bill, I'm glad to have you on on the Airport Wild podcast. Cody's been telling me about you for for a while now, but uh, I was wondering maybe you could start off with like a little introduction about yourself and maybe how you got into wildlife and, and into airport wildlife management. Well, let's see. It started out by becoming a wildlife conservation officer after oh about eleven and a half years in college. Took me a while because I, I took a, took, took took some time off to, well, spend a little time overseas with Uncle Sam, which is the Army. If anybody thinks I have a weird uncle, um, and then uh, became a wildlife conservation officer at the age of age of thirty. Uh, while I was still working there. I started doing work on a, on a local airport in Aberdeen, South Dakota. That was in 1999. And I did both jobs for a while, finally retired from the conservation officer work. And uh, now I'm just strictly doing pretty much airport work, although occasionally I do some um, habitat improvement projects for people. So I guess I've been working on the field since 83, I guess. So you got a pretty good amount of experience. Actually, you got more experience than, than I do on, on Earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, nice, Jesse. I, I guess that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, oh, so that's cool. So uh, it sounds like, re- especially recently, you've been doing a lot with uh, habitat management. Um, I was kind of wondering, because uh, I know you've, like, I, I read your paper but, um, on, on wildlife management. Uh I was kind of wondering if maybe you could explain the concept of of wildlife management on uh, or habitat management. Excuse me, I've been saying wildlife habitat management um, in a on an airfield airport environment. Maybe like why is it important to 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 manage the habitat? Well, sometimes I think it's really important to go back to the basics. You know, we only have wildlife where we have habitat, and you know, habitat that's Oh, kind of, you know, everybody have a, has a different picture in their minds of what ha- habitat is. But what it boils down to is that all animals, they have four very specific needs. Food, water, shelter, and space. And all of those have to be in a suitable, suitable arrangement. So we have food, water, shelter, and space. And every one of those links that you can remove from your airport um, that's particular to a species, for example, oh, um, diving ducks, for example, they want dark, they want deeper water, whereas puddle ducks, they want shallow water. Any one of these links that you can remove from your airport removes a certain amount of wildlife. So it's just important to always keep those four things in mind, food, water, shelter, space, all in a suitable arrangement. And, you know, for an eagle, they can fly 20 miles to feed on your airport, whereas a turtle, you know, it's going to take them all day just to get across a couple of runways. So that's the first thing, is just understand the very basics of habitat. And if you can, break that chain. And you, It's also important to understand, though, before I, before I let this go, is that what's good habitat for one thing is not necessarily good for another. But anything that you have out there, anything that you have out there, even if it's just cement, will um, will bring in some wildlife species. Cody, Cody, be a good one to tell you what cement can can bring in. 
cement can bring in? I would say the first thing that comes to mind with cement is deteriorated cement and killed there. Well, actually, you you are correct. First thing I was thinking about, maybe because where I live is vultures. They love they love those large areas of cement because of the updrafts, and they're they're kind of a lazy bird. Um, they they like it when they have those updrafts, so that heat, they'll just take them up and they can just soar around and soar around and soar around. Which you're absolutely right. That broken up cement with that killdeer, they like that too. So. We've even had some airports that had issues with uh, um, with uh, um, lease turns uh, coming and trying to nest on deteriorated pavement in addition to, to kill deer. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But it makes a point. You know, they say, we might as well cement it over if you're going to make us do all this. Well, not really, because you're going to bring in some wildlife that's going to cause you some problems. Right, especially you get a vulture swinging low and trying to hang those thermals and right and of course, where's the most cement? It's going to be right on that, right in that runway, right in that flight line. Exactly. Yeah. So definitely, um, definitely some stuff to think about. And so, when it comes to this, I mean, I'm definitely hearing that. Uh, I mean, different species, different species lines. As a matter of talking, uh, a deer versus a duck versus, well, even like you broke it down, puddle ducks versus diving ducks, will have some different habitat needs. Um, if say you you've got an airport that might have multiple species, like uh, an airport in the northeast, for instance, might have some water that attracts ducks and or some trees that might hold hold some deer. Um, I mean, obviously, all of these issues have to be addressed at some point. But uh, you ever find yourself having to prioritize one management type or one species management over another, or habitat management over another? Well, we absolutely have to prioritize, and that's because of what we said before. Anything we do is going to attract something, and sometimes bigger numbers than we had it before. So so what we do is we take a look at the wildlife out there, and we spend a considerable amount of time on it. On, um, on Part 139 certificate airports, those that have commercial surface, service, you know, we essentially spend three, four, five days a year, a uh, month for a year looking over that area to see type of wildlife they have. And then on, on some of the smaller airports, you know, just the, the um, general aviation airports, we might only spend a few days. But after guys have enough experience, you can tell an awful lot in a few days, especially if you know the area. In fact, usually in, in the, we used to say in the first hour or two, you can kill all the elephants. And that just means you can figure out what the big problems are just in the first hour or two. It's the rest of the rest of the week or the rest of the year that that kind of makes you figure out, you know, what what do we need to change? What's right. really causing these? Number one, what what are the most important species as far as hazardous go? And then, um, um, secondly, what do we need to do to remove those species? And thirdly, what is the possible consequences? Are we going to bring in something that's more hazardous? Right. Yeah, you don't want to bring in. Yeah, you don't want to get rid of a kill deer and bring in a vulture. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to have a bigger issue in the end. Um, uh, trying to lose my my plan of thought. So when you're prioritized, do you ever um, like, is there a certain part um? So, like a sort kind of breakdown or a species list that you might look for first. Like, uh, do you go by like the? I mean, this is how I'm thinking about it. Is like going by like the most dangerous species first. Like, are you gonna work on deer, geese, vultures first, and then you can worry about um, maybe some smaller, less threatening species down the line. Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, the FAA keeps um, a strike database and. I highly recommend that people put all strikes into there, whether they cause any damage or not, because uh, I just looked it up and I don't recall the number, but roughly 160,000 strikes they have in there. And it's important to not to put down the ones that don't even cause damage because we learned that, hey, it's not a big deal if you hit, say, a, a marshman, but it's a really big deal if you start to get into starlings. In fact, starlings, which are, what, they're smaller than most blackbirds, 
smaller than most cowbirds, a little bit bigger than English sparrow. They've caused more deaths in North America um, by by plane crashes than any other species, and they're just a small bird. So, but we use these strike reports to tell us what we need to look at first. And the first thing, especially on airport, large airport, where we have you know some funds to expand. Um, uh, white-tailed deer are the number one thing on the list. And of course, those are relatively easy. You know, you put up a fence, they can't fly over it. But, you know, it's got to be, you know, there's some thinking to do on that. That's another whole program in itself, is what kind of a fence do you build? Because up here where I live in, in South Dakota, if you build a 10-foot fence and you get eight foot of snow, guess what? You got a two-foot fence. So, you know, <laughs> the, there's a lot of thinking and pondering that goes into it and knowing the wildlife species around the area. Right, so there's, there's certainly no, uh, there's no magic bullet, in, in one way to put it, where like one management technique's really gonna, you know, solve all your issues. Um, so you're, you're talking about the, the, uh, the deer management, like with the, with the fence, um, can you maybe kind of go over, like maybe some other kinds of, uh, management techniques that you that you commonly utilize or you commonly see utilized um, it, with maybe like on uh, like how maybe properly manage for Canada geese or uh, uh, foxes if you have a fox issue or or anything like that. Yeah, I I can kind of touch on those briefly. Um, the number one thing that we we really try to do when we go into air into an area is to reduce the um, the number of species of plants that are there. You know, make it as monotypical as possible. And then we manage those plants in such a way as to say we want to, you know, Canada geese, for example, love, just absolutely love to graze on shorter, freshly mowed grass, and they'll come in there. During the nesting season, they may come in if there's water right next by, uh, right, right next door to the airport or on the airport, they might come into tall grass. Um, but in general, we're better off letting that grass grow from somewhere to six to twelve inches, and that'll keep out the majority of birds. But Canada bird, Canada geese, I gotta, I gotta admit, they are difficult, and that's why we, that's why, um, you know, we can't do it all with habitat management. We can do most of it with management habitat, but we need those people out there on the ground. And by those people on the ground, I don't necessarily mean that they have to be a wildlife biologist, but they have to be paying attention to what's going on. And they have to be out there and scaring those birds, um, chasing those birds off. And as a re last result, they might have to use lethal force. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, you don't have to have a, a wildlife degree just to, to have a sense of observation. I mean, just being able to observe and, and, and kind of know what you're looking at. Kind of I think, technique. Jesse, I'd like to just, uh, yeah, you need a interest and uh, a desire to, to make sure your airport's as safe as can be and, and take a proactive role in, in trying to identify those hazards and, and then do something about them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just having that desire um, will take you a lot farther than, than uh, just not wanting to be there. Uh, so I, I'm still stuck on, on Canada geese. And uh, just thinking about them, uh, with with birds such as geese and well ducks and a lot of, you know, a, a lot of species, a lot of these migrating species, um, well, just that they migrate. Um, how do you go about managing for species that migrates? Like, because um, I'm like kind of, we're kind of, kind of picturing like these that the whole changing the grass heights is more of a, a summertime, maybe a breeding season kind of management technique. Um, you, is there any other techniques maybe in the in the wintertime or in the winter seasons, cooler seasons, uh, where you, for managing ducks and geese and maybe, uh, maybe just not on the airport, but maybe you have an issue uh, off-site, um, maybe if you've got some like ag fields nearby or something like that? Well, you know what, I think that's a very – a very excellent question. It depends a lot on um, on each airport. Um, some of which might surprise you, like up here in South Dakota, we have uh, Rapid City, for example. They've had problems in the past, whereas 
you know, generally everything freezes up in South Dakota, but they're out in the Black Hills and they've got um, um, the river that runs through um, town south of the airport and the north of the airport are some of the only cornfields for miles and miles and miles. So we ha we get what we have uh, a synergistic effect. The Canada geese are not um, attracted to the airport whatsoever, but they fly over it. And Canada geese have a tendency to fly low and slow, and slow, and they fly from their from their resting and roosting grounds or to the feeding grounds. Then they fly back, and then they may do it um, again. They may do it again. And that is an extremely difficult problem to solve because, you know, they, they don't own Rapid Creek. They, they can't go down there and do too much with Rapid Creek. They can get kill permits, but there's a lot of housing development, that sort of thing down there. So they got to be careful about that. And if the person who owns the cropland will not let the airport on there to work to harass those geese, then the only thing they can do is stand on the airport and shoot as high a cracker shells as they can buy. And, and hope for the best. It can be really, really difficult. It's, it's almost better if you have someone on your airport that attracts those birds because then you can scare them off. Whereas if they're off the airport, you still have a responsibility because they're flying through your airspace. You still have a responsibility to deal with those, but your options are limited. So, so you made a really good point there. So with the, those off-site attractors, that, that, those synergistic effects, um, so we've talked about like off-site water bodies and, and cornfields or agriculture in general. Uh, what are some other uh, attractants that, that you've dealt with in the past? Um, like, what do you kind of look for? Like, when you show up, I mean, you, you've said, like, you get on an airport, you can you can kill all the elephants in an hour. What about those, out, those elephants that live outside the fence? How do you go about uh, tracking down those attractants? I mean, are you using, like, a like a satellite imaging, like Google Earth to figure it out, or you're just kind of pounding the pavement, trying to see what you can see within your your five-mile zone or critical area, or like how do you go about it? Well, I'd say all the above. You know, one of the first things I do is I, is I get on Google Earth, and I, I start poking around to see what I can find. And then on my first site visit, one of the very, very first things I do is sit down with as many of the people as I can that work there and ask them what the, what they are seeing, not necessarily as problems because they may not recognize it as a problem. They may not consider a thousand blackbirds to be a problem, whereas I consider it to be a huge problem. So I ask them, what kind of wildlife are they seeing? Where's it coming from? Where's it going? And then I'll, I will stop at farms, um, houses, around there and ask you know what they're seeing for birds and, and and what they're what they're doing and ask if they mind if i do some survey work on their land and, and you know show them my pickup and my identification give them my card and, and let them call a sheriff or whoever they need to call to check on me and and essentially keep almost as good eye not quite as good i have to admit i spend more time on the airport property because that's where we have the most ability to change things but I spend a lot of time out and I, I do pick various sites and then in between checking those sites um, at least six times during a period of oh, three to four days, um, including at sunrise, midday and sunset. Um, I'll, I'll go out searching on my own because I find things that people don't even know are there. So um, outside, we, we, we do a lot of work, but I do admit you know, you got five miles to cover, and most airports are within five miles of a town of some sort, and that town always has a city park or something where they want to feed the geese and they want to feed the ducks, and you're not going to take that away from them without making a lot of enemies. Yeah. So it it can be tough. So like in that kind of, like that urban environment, definitely um you definitely get a lot of uh, social cues there, but in general, do you find that a lot of landowners, probably more towards like the rural areas, um, are pretty willing to to let you on and let you go about your job or your business? If you're respectful of them and their land, um, and you let them know when you'll be going on there, 
Um, some of them are going to require a phone call at least every time you go on there. Other them, other them just want to know what your vehicle looks like, and then you can have a yellow light on, and you'll turn it on so it's flashing, even though you don't need it out there. You need it on the airport, but you don't need it out there. But you'll turn a yellow light on so it's flashing, so it's not like you're trying to hide. And I generally get, I generally get very good um, cooperation out of landowners generally. But you know, I, I'm I'll, I'm also an old country boy, and I know better than to drive across a, a cornfield <laughs> where the plants are two inches high and stuff. Not everybody knows that. So it kind of helps if you talk farmer, so to speak. Right. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I grew up the same way as the, the uh, local boy. knows knows what to do and what not to do, more importantly, um, around an ag field. Um, but I, I would like to back up just a little bit. So uh, you were talking about hitting these off-sites at multiple times of day, so um, your, your early, midday, and, and evenings. Um and I just want to clarify. So that's because you want to catch those at different times of day to maybe to try to track the wildlife movements that might vary throughout the day, correct? Well, that's exactly what you find. You'll, you'll generally find um, quite a bit of movement in the morning, uh, very little at midday, although that midday one is very important because sometimes these geese, for example, that are out feeding in the morning, um, all, all of a sudden they disappear. And that's because they've gone back someplace to roost. And that might be or a rest, not roost, rest during the daytime. Um, yeah, like a loafing kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, they're out there, they're out there loafing. You want to know where they're loafing because you can get rid of that. You know, you know that may be the best spot um, to harass them away from. If you can get them away from that, that loafing spot, then they might find, you know, other food. They've got their water, obviously, because they're sitting in it. But they might find other food, shelter, space. Um, right, elsewhere. yeah, and, and you, you can hit them. I mean, they're hitting that loafing spot because they're comfortable there. I mean, feed, they're usually on edge anyways. With, 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 I'm, kind of, I'm still thinking of Canada geese. But if you can hit them in a loafing kind of area where they thought they were comfortable, um, that could have a more profound impact on them than just having them shift one cornfield over in, in to for their feeding. But loafing areas are, tend to be fewer and far more more far between um I, i'm maybe not in south dakota uh up in the up in the prairie pothole region but i know in, in a lot of states that seems that seems to be more of a situation yeah we have we have plenty of uh, prairie potholes up here but you know you don't always have to move them that far to keep them out of the main plane um paths so you know you you can do a lot of good offside i'm just telling you it's harder to do you don't have the authority that you do on it right on a, yeah you on. don't have the authority at all um yeah yeah for sure for sure um but, but you know you appeal well, most people are good people you know they don't want to be even slightly responsible for a plane going down one person or 150 people getting killed um you know whether it's for you know ethical reasons or or legal reasons for that matter potentially they could be sued if they knew that they were that they had a um, something that was uh, attracting a hazard, just kind of like a swimming pool without a fence around it and the kid drowns. It's not quite that bad. Um, but, you know, just in general, people are, people are good. And if, if they can help out, and it's not going to take cost them any money out of their pocket, they're going to help you. Yeah. yeah. Generally, folks seem to be seem to be pretty good at heart. Um, so let's take the conversation back inside the fence i guess for now um uh i just had a, a point i thought about i should have asked earlier and i um, just thought of it again is we've been talking about grass heights uh we were talking about grass heights and and managing it for for canada geese and then uh i know you can also manage grass heights for raptors um mm -hmm. if you have bootios hitting an area uh maybe for for um might be hunting uh rodents but something that I read in your paper, and I, and I thought that was pretty interesting, was not just the different heights, but different age classes in in in, uh, in vegetation. I was wondering maybe you can go into how different age classes of, of veg, even just grass, Bermuda grass, on an airport might uh, affect wildlife movements and wildlife habits. Well, what you're talking about is edge effect, and edge effect is created wherever two or more types of habitat converge. 
And by habitat, it can be grass. It could be grass links. Um, it can be grass v corn, um, grass versus a runway. Anytime two or more habitat types converge, you're going to see more species of wildlife at those areas and more individual members of those species are going to be found at that edge effect. Um, wherever those edges are. So that's why we get try to get rid of as many of those as we can. But like personally on land that I've managed for wildlife, when we're put, putting in say a 40 acre grass planting, native grass planting with pollinators and that sort of thing where we're trying to attract wildlife away from airport, I will always recommend that they put that in over a two year period, if not three year period. And um, the last one I did, it is incredibly stark contrast. Um, now, in this particular case, we used a huge variety of seed. Um, on the airport, I'd say use probably two varieties. Um, we'd like to see just one. Remember, I said we want to keep the, the variety of plants down to um, as, as near one as we can get to. Right, keep it as uniform as possible. Right, but but realistically, you just throw a big blue stem or something like that without mixing it with a fescue or or a, a ryegrass or something, it's not going to go. Uh, uh, one of them is going to take over. Um, but you will you will see if you plant those during different years that because of the rain or the sun or the length of the growing season, who knows. Um, maybe it's a person that planted. Maybe maybe one person had the planter sent a set a quarter of an inch deeper. For whatever reason, those different patches of grass are going to be different, and that it, it may not look different to you, but I'll guarantee you that birds on the ground, wildlife on the ground, can see the difference, and there is difference. It might be in the amount of chaff that's on the ground. It might be in the density of, of, of each grass plant. It might be in the variety of grass plants, but it's it, it's it's very clear that you have you've made yourself two different kinds of, of habitat, and those two different kinds of habitat from these large fields are going to um, attract different amounts of, of of wildlife, and and of the wildlife they do attract, there'll be more of those species, but at the edge where those plants, where those fields come together is where you're going to find the most. Because that, that edge has more food, water, shelter, space, all in a suitable arrangement. Right, because like you mentioned the chaff, I mean like birds might be using that for attracting that spot, getting like nesting material. Exactly. So kind of going further with this, with this edge, um, so especially in like the outdoor realm you always hear about like especially like deer um of course most animals are but like deer seem to be the really the, the popular one when trying to describe uh edge effect in, in wildlife um but i know there's two kinds of edge out there i know there's what's referred to as a hard edge and, and a soft edge uh is that something like in a case where uh maybe you can't get rid of i'm, I'm kind of thinking more of a tree scenario now uh, in a kind of a treed airport um, where you might try to manage more towards a hard edge or a soft edge and try to man um, use those to to manage for certain wildlife? You know, I worked on the Yellowstone Airport. I worked up in northern Minnesota, um, North, and in fact, several airports in, in Minnesota that have just a tremendous amount of trees on them. And, you know, frankly, to cut them all down would be just a tremendous task. And it's not like they're old growth timber that's worth a lot of money. You know, it's slash mostly. So what I recommend that they do is if they have a, a few very, very tall trees, uh, take those out because those are the ones that the raptors, the ravens, the crows are going to come and sit on top of, even the blackbirds, like the very, very tallest ones. I'm not talking about taking out thousand trees. I'm talking about taking out a few. And then make that edge what I would call hard edge and keep it about the same distance away from the runway on both sides. Because if you have it where it comes out to say a point on one side, and especially if there's also a similar point on the other side, everything's gonna cross at that point. Now, because that's the shortest distance across that, that, that short grass, they're just gonna cross there. And that, that includes birds for reasons I sometimes have not been able to understand. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. 
We can't always understand why they do it, but our job is to see what they see what they're doing and if we can change their behavior. Right. And I have noticed where we allow those little peninsulas, you might say, of trees or taller grass or whatever to stick out and not manage it, that you can have more animals uh, crossing there. So you better make darn sure it's a place where if they're going to cross, you want them to cross. And that is not center field. Right, exactly. So that's, um, and then just to just to clarify, when, when you're talking about a hard edge, you're talking like it goes trees to grass. There's no fluff, there's no brush, there's no tall grass feathering down in the short grass. It's a, it's a hard, defined edge. Well, when I'm talking about it, yes. Now, you might have a different, um, a different interpretation of that. Because I've heard, you know, not every biologist uses every word the same. Would you call it something else? No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying I agree with you. I just for for okay. our listeners that may not know the, the the difference between a hard edge, like what a what a true hard edge might mean, versus a, what we're talking about by a soft edge, which is, to me, it's more gradual. You go from taller, maybe old growth trees to uh, younger gr- trees that might be just starting up because that's where they can get the sunlight right on the edge of the field, and then they just kind of go in age classes down, and then might turn into. Um, what I refer to as brush or, or tall grass that might not be hit with a brush hog or um, and just kind of creates like this gradual kind of slope almost of oh, yeah. canopy right that goes right from the trees right down to the ground. And I admit that's really tough to to prevent. It really is. But if you can keep a straight line going that, that that's you know grass and then it then it jumps to uh, the trees, shrubs and brush. Um, to me, that straight line is every bit as important as, you know, the, the makeup of the trees, shrubs, and brush, although both are important because different species of birds use, use shrubs and some rely on smaller trees and some rely on old growth trees. And, and you can see that just by watching, you know, you don't, have, you don't have to spend much time there to see that there's going to be a lot of different species of birds and, and they're not all, you know, they're not all going to be in the same tree. With a couple of, of exceptions, I've noticed in a lot of airports they'll have, they'll go and they'll cut down their trees if there'll be a particularly beautiful pine or something that's, um, it's just, it's 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 off the runway clearance zone, so they think, you know what, we're just going to leave that because it's so pretty. Well, if you sit and watch that pine, you will see birds fly from this hard line that we have to that pine, land on that pine, and then continue across the runway there. So it's just as if you'd left a peninsula. It's just exactly as, as you'd left that, you know, I'm calling it a peninsula, you know what I mean? Um, you didn't have that, that straight edge out there. Right. So, so even, it's interesting, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Right. So even if it's just a mental thing, I mean, um, I mean, most of life is, is somewhat mental uh, more than physical. And uh, it, I mean, definitely has that that habitat they see that tree that means safety so they're going to get to there and then they're, from that point they're going to hopscotch and, and go to wherever their end destination is it, it, it means safety it gives them a chance to pause and overlook the airport one more time to see what there's predators for out there maybe um you know uh, maybe there's some hawks flying around or something that that they're concerned about I, for whatever reason they're going to stop in that tree and then they're going to fly on, and they are fully yep. capable of flying 20 miles without stopping. But since yep. we were kind enough to leave that tree there for them, well, they're going to stop at that tree. <laughs> they are going to use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just funny how how they'll how they'll do that. Um, so I'm kind of thinking. Maybe we'll we can pivot a little bit. Um, I know we've kind of been focusing on uh, kind of the natural, and I don't mean to blindside you on this. If I do, um, uh, we've been kind of talking about like the natural uh, uh, habitat management. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about like artificial habitat management, like uh, like maybe trying to manage for for birds or wildlife in a more developed area like maybe around like a terminal or um, someplace where maybe somebody's feeding birds. Uh, is that something that that uh, you've dealt with in the past? 
Well, I deal with it probably continually. Um, people like to feed wildlife. I like to feel like, you know, I spent $150 last year on bird food. And there's a lot of people that spend a lot more than that because um, I like the birds outside my back door. But of course, my back door is not on an airport. Um, and somehow you have to get the management to buy into this that, you know, it, it, it's a uh, go back to the frame of mind that you were talking about. Some of this is a mind game. And you got to get out of your mind that, well, we're just going to feed these little birds here. Um, or we're just, we're going to, we're going to let them build nests on the side of the, of the, um, of the sheds and not do anything about it. You got to get out of that mindset that, you know, you're the good guy and you're going to raise these little baby birds and that sort of thing. Because what you're doing in is bringing in wildlife hazards. And the, the same birds that may nest on, uh, now, I'm not talking like barn swallows, but some of the, some of these other birds that may nest on a building or even in, in some of the shrubs on there will also nest like inside an airplane engine. And when they go to turn that thing on, you know, all of a sudden, poosh, all kinds of stuff is flying all over. Well, hopefully it starts flying all over before they get up in the air. Right. Because they, they can do a lot of damage. So do it do what i do spend your spend your money on on habitat and lord knows i spend a lot of money on habitat um but do it away from the airport you know when you're working at the airport your your number one priority is the safety of your of the flying passengers the flying public and those who they can crash land on for that for that matter that's your number one priority not making sure that the english barrels get a good lunch that's, right yeah you're there for to, to manage not to conserve uh, that, that that's exactly right which is not to say you shouldn't be a conservationist i'm a very staunch conservationist in fact i'm uh, past president of south Dakota wildlife federation and current president of the, of the wildlife federation camel coalition which is the legislative branch and i work all the time to make sure that our wildlife is protected that our natural resources are protected but i fully understand that we have these little pieces of land you know, we've got a little piece of land that we set aside for wildlife. We also sometimes, sometimes need a little piece of land that is not for wildlife. And airports are that one little piece. We need to get them off there as much as we reasonably can. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I'm right there with, with, with the conservation, but just a, yeah, the airport's not the place to put up a Purple Martin house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I really, I think that's all I got for you, Bill. Um, Cody or Bill, do you guys have any maybe like closing thoughts or statements? Or Cody's been kind of drifting off there in the background. So, no, I think you guys covered everything pretty well. Um, you know, I just, I think, you know, everybody, I think the point of the the whole conversation was, you know, starting at the foundation. Um, identifying those habitats and trying to come up with a solution to the habitats is really the foundation of, of any wildlife management program. Um, and, you know, you really have to sometimes step back and think about what am I doing here? Or what needs to be done and try to think outside the box sometimes to find a solution to those unique, unique habitat issues that we run into. You know, there's obviously the ba basics, the, the, the elephants, but what happens when that elephant's protected and you can't uh, do much about that particular elephant that can right that can that can uh, um, cause cause a headache so um, you know it's it's not a it's not an easy thing and I think having conversations like this is is you know is really good to help you know stimulate more ideas and and throw throw ideas off of each other to try to see what's going to work here and what's going to work there yeah, well, for sure. Because I mean, no two airports are. Or sorry about it. I didn't mean to, to cut you off. No, no. Uh, no, I was gonna say I was just gonna agree with Cody that like no two airports are the same. I mean, you got an airport uh, in New England versus an airport in the Southwest. You're gonna have two totally different um, mindsets on on what the, they have to deal with and maybe how to go about it. No, I I was simply gonna say that you know I I thought that Cody summed it up real nice there. 
And um, you said some earlier about how you don't have to be a biologist in order order to to take care of the airport. And I totally agree with you. You just well, in fact, Cody um, mentioned too that uh, you just have to care. You 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 have to pay attention to what's going on around you. You have to care about it, and you have to operate on it, act on it somehow. And in general, there's somebody that you can call for a resource. You know, you can call Lou Makers. You can call me. You can call your local fish and game department. You can call um, the FAA, and there are always resources to help you. Just get on the internet and Google wildlife hazards at airports. Good heavens, you can read for a year. Um, so you mentioned the contacts. Um, so maybe Bill, can you, um, I don't know if you want to or not, but uh, maybe you can tell folks how to get a hold of you um, if they have any questions they want to talk to you about about have, uh, wildlife management and habitat management. Well, I'm Bill Antonides. I'm located in Aberdeen. I don't have a website. Don't need one. I keep plenty busy because I'm trying to trying to retire. Uh, <laughs> Right, so I shouldn't have folks directing your way then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, my house phone's actually still listed in the phone book, um, although it's getting pretty close to election season. I, I swear I'm going to shut that off, the first phone <laughs> call that I say, that I get. But, but my cell phone's 605-380-8586, and I've, I've worked with Lumakers all over the country. Sometimes we work alone, sometimes we work together, sometimes he's in charge, sometimes I'm in charge. And it works out just fine. So so I got a question for you guys, and and, uh, um, and if, if we'll see where this goes. But, uh, um, but my question is, uh, what is like a, a unique um, habitat issue that each of you have run into um, on an airport? And, and how did you solve that, I think, to sum things up? A unique issue. I think the most unique issue I had on airport was down in Nebraska at an airport that was adjacent to the uh, Sandhill Crane migration um, in the spring and fall. Mostly in the spring is when um, several hundred thousand Sandhill Cranes and just many visitors come through. That's the one place the one place on the airport where I recommended that they keep um, a crop inside the fence line. And I recommended that it be soybeans, that it always be soybeans. And if they needed something, um, you know, because of disease or pestilence or whatever, just just, just keep it black for a year um, or two or, or, or use chemicals or whatever it takes. But the reason that I did that was Sandhill cranes are so attracted to cornfields, to grasslands, short grass, tall grass, uh, wetlands. They are attracted to all this stuff. The only place that I did not see sandhill grains to any certain extent was soybean fields. So that's the only airport that I've ever recommended that they leave crops inside the perimeter fence. That's, that's pretty interesting. I've never never thought of that before. With that, I've never run into that particular issue. Jesse, how about you? Uh, well, I just want to talk a little bit more about about bills for a second. Is that makes a lot of sense though? Because um, uh, I've always been a waterfowler. Um, grew up chasing ducks and geese across the nation. But uh, that's one thing that I never thought about in the wildlife field was you never see almost never see, I can't really say almost never um but like Canada geese you never see them hitting soybeans either they always prefer to hit a different uh a different crop when available um over soybeans like you will see them in it but it generally seems like like that's a, a very good choice for waterfowl management they just don't seem to hit it as much as um as much as they hit other other crops pheasants are the same way um if they got another crop choice, corn specifically, or sunflowers, they're going to take that any day of the week. Now, um, I didn't recommend uh, corn or uh, sunflowers. Now, partly because the sandhill cranes love the corn, 
um, I didn't see him too many sunflower seed, uh, fields, but the but the main thing is, is that crop grows so tall that you know occasionally a deer would get in through an open gate or whatever, and you couldn't see it when it was in um, tall um, sunflowers or corn. So I would never recommend that, that they left that. Out. But the soybeans never got over what two and a half foot tall, so you could see a deer in there. So. You know, you got you got to really, really think these things through. You know, do you want? Seven yes, I mean, the soybeans of, are going to localize that deer too. Instead of having one wandering around, he's going to localize. He's going to go right for that food source and be easy to to manage for. Exactly. Easier to manage for. But uh, yeah, for for going back to your question, Cody, I think mine would have to be swallows on this on the side of this old World War Two hangar that were hanging out, um, but they were flying across this runway to reach a water source that's right in the middle of the airport. I mean, it's a creek right in the middle. It's the only water for miles and miles around. Only, only uh, constant water for miles and miles around. Of course, with the water, there's mud, and these swallows were using that mud to, to build a nest. But we couldn't get rid of the water because there's a legal right to it by the farmers that it flows to uh so we couldn't move the water and the money's not there to cover the water so it's just always there can't block it can't dam it can't do anything with it um uh we wound up using something new to to for us down here and um using the methylene threnolate uh the ma foggers uh just using a, a new tool um and, and spraying that across where the birds were hanging out and uh as they're flying in and out they were they were ingesting or breathing in that ma and and uh and that got them out of there but that's probably the most unique one that i've dealt with so far but um yeah, and that, that down the line. <clears throat> was that fancy word for grape juice yes <laughs> that's very fancy for grape juice okay gotcha <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm told it's the same things that they use to flavor the grape Jolly Ranchers. Okay. Um, that's what I was told anyways, and that it's it's actually um, kind of nice to get out of your truck on an airport where it usually stinks of jet fuel and, and uh, burnt rubber, and you walk out and you smell grape. Um, so it's kind of like the best uh, uh, scent diffuser I've ever, I've ever been around. Interesting. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's what I got. Excellent. So, Bill, what's your favorite binoculars for on airports? Well, I personally like Alpins, but there's, I, I got to say, there's some of the higher-end binoculars that are darn good. Mm -hmm. uh, Leopold makes some excellent ones. There's a couple other that I can't afford, so I can't remember their names. If you were to recommend uh, um, a shotgun for an airport staff, what shotgun would it be? I, I personally recommend a single shot, 12 gauge um, break open. And they're getting harder to get. I bought one here a couple of years ago. I had to go to Minnesota to get it. It's only 150 bucks. But I like that break open one because I can use uh, the shotgun shells that Bluemaker sells. And you can get elsewhere that have the... Um, uh, whatever they call it that goes out in sparks and bangs and that sort of thing but it's also black powder and so it'll just eat your barrel up i've used a 12 gauge a cheap 12 gauge and you can do that and just let it destroy your barrel you know it's not like you're going for accuracy and you can do that but that 12 gauge you can just pop that thing open um have a bucket with water sitting inside water and soap and uh and when you come in for the day wash that thing out just scrub it out a couple times you don't got to take the gun apart or anything you just broke it open bam you're done and you you don't shoot two shells that often if you get good enough with your gun you can shoot two shells pretty darn quick or right. you're talking you're point. probably talking like the old uh like the old new england single shots with a button yeah rather than, rather than a swing lever yeah. uh yeah i got I think, one yeah. of these well, I know, like, um, because uh, like, like you just said, they're getting hard to find nowadays. Uh, I think the only single shot I know that's being mass produced right now, for the most part. Well, I think what, um, 
Oh, they start with a C. New England has one, and then uh, Henry's started to come out with them now. But Henry's. Well, really- Henry was the one I was thinking about, but somebody else, um, traditions or, or another one that CVA maybe I think it was actually CVA, the muzzleloader company or New England Arms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mine came from Russia, and I had I hadn't heard that Henry was making them. I highly recommend if you use a twenty-two that use a Henry lever action because even though it says long rifle on it, it does take shorts. Yep. Longs and long rifles, and I like to use those short CB caps because those things don't bounce all over and they'll kill something at close range. And I really, really like those, and they're quiet. So it's yeah, good- the CB caps are. I think they're probably one of the better, uh, the better rounds for for wildlife. Yeah, they're they're excellent. And Henry's Henry's all made in America. I'd a lot rather buy an American made gun than a Russian made gun. Let me tell you. So. Uh, and and they're just a really good gun. I can't think of anything else to ask. Jesse, any other pop questions? Um, no, I've just been enjoying soaking up the information, trying to remember to ask the right question. Well, maybe we knew this, maybe we knew this again later, because I'll tell you, I think between me and Cody, at least, uh, we got enough years out there that we got a whole lot more information we haven't even touched. That, well, that's that, kind of the idea. Is, um, see, that's what we did. We got you started. Now you want to keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I we certainly. Once, lo- Bill, I knew once I got you on here, you, you'd like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I know I'm definitely looking forward to doing this again. Um, maybe pick some different subjects and mm-hmm. or even just start. Chewing the fat. I mean, even just going over like what each of us prefers to use on a, as far as equipment, as far as like what basic equipment might be, uh, warranted on an airport, like like a pair of binoculars or a scatter gun or anything like that. I'd love to hear everybody's opinions. Maybe that's something we can put out to the listeners and seeing what everybody else prefers and seeing what see what's around. When uh, I should have added something when when Cody said what kind of binoculars you like to use, I just immediately thought, well, what brand? But it's far more important what size you have, and you want something that you get out and oh, sometimes you want to follow a bird through the woods or whatever, and you and you can carry it. You don't have to have um, some guy standing beside you to carry your binoculars. You know, but yeah, yet, you don't need a vinyl bearer, <laughs> but. But they shouldn't be so tiny that they're opera glasses either. So, you know, pick up, pick up some. Um, see how they feel in your hands. If they'll let you, put the strap around your neck and, and, and see if it's going to kill you if it hangs here all day. Because mine generally hang around my neck all day long. And I've, yeah. only, had two neck, I've only had two neck surgeries. So. <laughs> so, so going on that, because I'm still recording, so I'm, I'm still... <laughs> Uh, so going off of that, what, as far as the size goes, what, what do you prefer? Are you like more of a compact, like an eight, like a, like a 32 millimeter guy or you go up to like a 50? I like that larger objective lens because so much the front lens, I like that larger because it brings in more light depending on what kind of binocular it is. The coatings and stuff have a lot to do with it too. Um, but I, I like at least a 40, 42, I Honestly, can't remember what exactly the sizes are, but at least that. And I generally don't have to have that much power. Ten power is generally good enough for me. I also have a spotting scope available for when I really need power. But I want those binoculars to be medium sized to fit my hands well, to fit my face well. Um, I can find them, I can lift them, and they've got good optics. That's incredibly important to me. So spend what you can. Um, I can't spend what's really required uh, to give me the binoculars I want. But I got to tell you, like the albums I have, uh, I did not spend that much. And those are top quality binoculars. And when I say that much, I'm talking about under $500. Yeah, they're, yeah the Alpins, they're a, you get a wicked bang for your buck with yeah. those. Um, yeah, because I think I'm right there with you. Is I kind of like, a, generally, I kind of prefer a 1042. But uh, most recently, I've been I've been running some 10 by 50s. I've picked up a set of the Vortex Viper 10 by 50s. Um, 
on sale, and, and I was, I've been really pleased with those. But they do add a little bit of weight to them. So I think next time I probably will go back to a 42 or maybe an 842. Um, I'm right there with you. I like that I like that 50-inch lens. But like I say, I've had two neck surgeries. You'll be having your first here in about five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> And Cody will send you flowers. He's your boss. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, flowers and a pack of snard seasoning. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I know you mentioned the Alpins and the and the, the loopholes. Um, and I mean, I think, well, I mean, I'm a Vortex guy, but um, uh, if for somebody listening, like, what are some other brands that you might think are even worth looking at? Like, are we talking like Barskas? Are we talking like Swarovskis? Two ends of the spectrum. Well, Swarovskis, you, you're not going to find much to beat those. Uh, the the Barskis, I've got some. I've actually got a set that I bought for Christmas on a Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving sale, 9 by 12s by 50 inches for $5. And I think I paid too much for those. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, but then again, I got some Barskis. That uh, I don't know when I bought them. I bought them a long time ago. I haven't opened the box yet. But um, just looking through the plastic, they they look pretty good. So I, I'm not going to say all bad or all good. What I'm saying is you more or less get what you pay for. But start at over hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. Go to a hundred. Yeah. Start at a hundred. I, I I definitely agree with you. Is that hundred dollar mark's really the threshold to where you start getting into like you're not because i feel like anything less than that like like um i call them el cheapos uh you're really gonna start you know, well for one you're not gonna be able to see anything because they're probably gonna be so clouded um but your your eyes are gonna hurt after like a minute <laughs> i know that's how it is with me like if i if i look through uh even a smaller pair like um i picked up a, a pair of 10 by 28s i had I, I used to hunt with my turkey vest um, and I looked through those and after like a minute, I was just looking, watching the birds on a wire and my eyes started to ache that I picked up my, my 10 fifties and, um, I can spend hours behind those without having any, uh, any kind of fatigue so far. But, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so we're kind of like that hundred. So yeah, that hundred, 200, Maybe not, don't have to go up to $300, but that's kind of like where if folks are looking for a good pair of, of binos, that one, 150, 200 marks kind of the, the sweet spot. Yeah. Hey, Jesse, I got to ask because I know other people are wondering. You said, okay, you were looking at these turkeys sitting on the, or excuse me, you said you were looking at these birds sitting on the wire. Yeah. Okay. What kind of wire and what kind of birds? Uh, they were grackles and they're just a telephone wire. Um, I, I was in my apartment watching them across the road. Uh, just had some grackles and I think there was a collared dove, uh, up there. And they were probably, I think to that wire is 45, 50 yards, um, from my couch. Okay, well, I was just curious because you mentioned you were turkey hunting, and then the next moment you mentioned that you were. No, no, I used to. Yeah, no, that's yeah. It's kind of a. I used to use them turkey hunting when I was a kid. Um, they was kind of sitting mm -hmm. in my, my vest, and I forgot about them, and uh, I was rummaging through some old boxes, and I came across those and picked them up and realized how how good I've got it now. Well, the old game more than me came out. You said you were hunting. Oh boy! Oh boy! Here we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. The turkeys, yeah, the turkeys were years ago. The, the turkeys birds on a were like two weeks ago. <laughs> Bill, Bill, get, Bill, get that under control. You know, you can't yeah. be bringing that out. Yeah, right? <laughs> you gotta quit hunting turkeys in a zoo. <laughs> you know what the fun part is? I live like a mile from the Phoenix Zoo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can actually, so I bought, I've got some 15 by 56 uh, vultures that I, that I have mounted on a tripod, or yeah, I use them on a tripod, uh, and that's how I test out binoculars now, is I'll take them on my back patio, 
and point them at the zoo because the zoo is 0.8 miles, exactly 0.8 miles. That mountain, the Bighorn Sheep Mountain, is 0.8 miles from my patio. So I can sit back there and watch the sheep come over the ridge and, and down into the shade in the evenings. Um, so, yeah, you get some wild looks when you're the only country boy in town with a pair of binos looking at looking at the bighorns. Everybody thinks you're creeping on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your blooper take right there, Jesse. Everyone thinks you're creeped, Matt. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna have a lot of fun. And Bill's gonna one. say, and, and Bill's blooper is gonna say, "You gotta quit hunting turkey at the zoo." <laughs> <laughs> so we've got quit hunting turkey at the zoo, killing elephants, and creeping on people. I think we got a pretty good little blooper <laughs> intro going. Uh, well, okay, fun, guys. All hey, right, guys. Have a good night. We'll talk to you sometime soon. All right. Bye. Bye, everybody.